Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special returning guest, Noah Smith. Noah, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back. So Noah, uh, about a year ago, we spoke about higher education and, and, and what was happening uh, going on there, especially uh, because of COVID. You know, reflecting a year later and sort of, you know, I imagine people are going to be back for school in the fall. Um, what have we learned about sort of the state of state of higher ed, uh, you know, a- a- after COVID? Unfortunately, I think that a lot of my glummer predictions are starting to come true. You're seeing drops in enrollment. You're seeing a lot of drops in staff hiring at colleges. Yeah. And of course, it's the weaker colleges that are getting hurt more. I do think that some of the eagerness to say not use SATs in uh, admissions by some of the state schools is a way to keep up enrollment. Uh, in the face of declining demand, we did see a pretty large bailout of colleges with Biden's uh, COVID relief bill that passed earlier this year. So, you know, that so that's going to last for one year. So colleges will be OK. The question is long term demand. The question is, are people going to realize like, you know, wait a second, I'm paying all this money and I, you know, I just took some Zoom classes like just maybe maybe it's not worth it. So that could happen. I also think that you know, a lot of smaller colleges are just kind of going to go bust. Yeah. And so I, I think my my predictions are unfortunately coming true, although the federal bailout did happen. So that'll cushion some of it. Is is it fair to, is it directionally accurate to lump uh, education, uh, housing and healthcare? And, you know, Mark Andreessen would say that the big, you know, challenge is that uh, government restricts supply or regulations restrict supply and, you know, subsidize demand. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, quality stagnates and and price uh, increases, and, and we can't bend the cost curve until the you know regulations let up, or we just have enough tech innovation to to lower them. W- what's missing there? Well, okay, so when you're talking about education, I mean that that's a great description for like you know housing in city centers in America. In terms of healthcare, I would say it's you know it's much different than than what he describes, because healthcare we don't we don't really restrict supply that much. It's not it's not a factor of like, you know, there's these things that we don't allow, like where you don't allow construction cities, but with healthcare, it's not, it's not that we do subsidize it though. With education, it's a little trickier because there are government requirements for like accreditation or whatever, but there's so many already accredited schools that can expand as much as they want. Like Stanford university, Harvard university, they, they were accredited a billion years ago and there's absolutely zero regulation preventing them from building 20 satellite campuses with the Harvard brand. You know, I mean, like becoming like the Olive Garden of higher education, any of these accredited institutions of which we have literally hundreds of them could do this. And so in terms of restricting supply, if you think the only real regulation is like accreditation for new universities, but you can make infinite branch universities from the people (laughs) who are already accredited and they don't. And so that's the question. So that's why I don't think restriction of supply is a big deal in education either. I think, well, no, let me rephrase that. I think government restriction of supply is not a big deal. I think that endogenous restriction of supply for the purpose of pumping up prestige, that's why Harvard doesn't build out, right? Yeah. Because they want they want this elite prestige factor because what they're going for is not actually price. It's not a private company that wants to maximize total revenue. They're fine. They, you know, if it maximized prestige, they'd have three students per year. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. And so I understand Harvard and Princeton and whatnot, but if you're some, you know, C-list university, you're accredited. I mean, should you, do we have some examples of people who've done, you know, just like gone mass market, global, you know, bunch of satellite offices and just said, hey, we're just going to play a numbers game and no, but I mean, you, you do have tons of universities that have like extensions and branches and whatnot uh, that have been pretty successful. I mean, the university of California system and especially the Cal State system have just been extremely effective. That's not even, you know, private. That's it's hard to say government versus private anymore because government universities are only 20% funded by the government. Yeah. They're 80%, you know, pri- funded by like tuition or alumni contributions so or whatever, you know, other private stuff. So it's like are they really government when there's just 20%? I don't know. 
yeah. the government's just like kicking in a little cash to these guys. But um, there have been lots of expansions in like the Cal State system, which has done great. Cal State provides the best value for money. Cal State and uh, CUNY yeah. are the two systems that everyone, every state in the nation should be trying to 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 emulate those and we we think about higher education in terms of like harvard and stanford and blah blah blah. but i think we just have to realize that those people are so into eliteness and prestige that in terms of mass education in terms of you know just providing actual dollars for like value for dollars for like the average american harvard's never going to do it no matter how much matthew iglesias yells at them they're never going to do it and stanford's (laughs) never going to do it actually stanford might do it but but it would be very difficult to get their attention yeah. and it, get them to do this. It's the higher ed equivalent of nimbyism or something. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, like nimbyism is restricting supply. It's like, if you, if you look at the local homeowners, they're restricting supply so that their own real estate prices and rents that they charge to people can get pumped up. Yeah. Right. Landlords are the worst nimbies. Um, if you, if you look at all these people, like, you know, so so-called lefty people saying that like new housing construction will actually raise rents or some bullshit like that. You look, they're all a bunch of slumlords. Yeah. They just want to pump up their, their rents they can charge. And, and yeah. so anyway, yeah. So it's, but, but Harvard doesn't have the ability to restrict college spots in America overall. They can only restrict spots to Harvard. Yeah. And that's fine because we don't need Harvard. Right. Like you can have anybody, anybody can do this. You can just build more campuses, take, in more people. The problem yeah. is that education is this weird market where you don't actually know what value you've gotten from it until like it's already too late and it's like late in your career. So it's this, yeah. it's so reputation based. Yeah. Because nobody actually can tell. Like, you know, if I go and get a sandwich, I know what I'm eating right now. If yeah. I use a piece of software, I know what I'm using right now. If I go get an education, I don't know what, how useful it was until like my career is over. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. So if in housing, we just need to build more and in uh, universities, we just need to, you know, I do think we need to build more. It's just not government allowing building more. That's the key. What in healthcare do we need to do then? What's the solution there? Oh, just like, just like, you know, bombing raids on hospital. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, We just, so healthcare, the, uh, you know, Andreessen's not going to like that I say this, but, but national health insurance is the way to go because the national health insurance system can bargain down prices. So the problem is our prices are just way too high. We yeah. just get overcharged for everything. And there's a lot of ways you can try to deal with this, but competition just doesn't do it in healthcare. And we, it, there's a lot of reasons why, and I can go into the reasons, but then competition just, you know, it works for a lot of things. Uh, I don't know. Life insurance is super cheap now, but, and then it even works in some parts of healthcare. Like, like if, um, oh, like, uh, you know, um, LASIK. Yeah. LASIK's really cheap because there's competition. The thing is that as soon as you have, as soon as you have things like chronic conditions or we have life threatening conditions or things like that, or life, yeah. So like lifestyle, basically diabetes or like heart attacks or something like competition doesn't really work with this. And, you know, if you're having a heart attack, you don't think about what hospital you go to yeah. completely like price insensitive. If you go to the nearest hospital, you can't have 20 hospitals on a block. So the, uh, you know, the local effect of hospitals, the local monopoly is really important for emergency services and for like, yeah. Anyway, there, there's just a bunch of empirical observations and theoretical reasons to match those observations showing why competition doesn't work in a lot of the healthcare uh, sector. There's also adverse election. There's moral hazard. There's a lot of weird stuff going on there. And so every every country that has like a high quality healthcare system that gets it for cheap yeah. does this, kind of the same thing, which is not the Bernie Sanders thing. It's not nationalize the whole industry. What they do is they have a national healthcare system that pays I don't know, something like 70% of the costs, unless you're like really old or poor, in which case it'll subsidize you more because they're nice. Yeah. Uh, that's redistribution. But then basically for they, they pay 70% of the costs, but you're still stuck with the other 30%. And in exchange for paying 70% of the costs, they get the authority to sort of negotiate down prices. Yeah. And in Japan, it's like very explicit. They just sort of get in a room and say, this is what the price will be. Council of Doctors yeah. declares this is the price you can charge. But then, you know, of course, we would do it differently. We would just have, you know, Medicare is the, the Medicare system is actually really good at determining prices. So all we take Medicare, which is the system that works really well for seniors. You know, seniors, it's not a monopoly. It's not nationalization. Seniors do buy, have Medigap. They have private supplemental insurance. They have, you know, deductibles, and co-pays and whatever. And that, that controls costs. 
And so, because you're not just like throwing infinite money at whatever people want to spend on as Bernie would do. <laughs> and so, so then, um, so Medicare is really good at negotiating down prices. And if you look at the same services, they looked at the exact same services and compare the price Medicare gets to the price other like private insurers or whatever smaller yeah. people get. And, uh, you know, Medicare is just beating them all. Like even Kaiser, like yeah. Medicare can get a lower price and negotiating powers is the the biggest part of that. And so we don't like, I don't want to nationalize the health insurance system or abolish private health insurance, but having a national health insurer that can just bargain those prices down yeah. is really valuable. I think that Japan and Korea's system is the system we want to copy. Got it. I want to segue into a different topic, which is in, in the aughts, you know, people were concerned about, uh, you know, or Silicon Valley, people were concerned about singularity. And in, in, in the last few years, people have been, you know, coalescing around the great stagnation, um, you know, uh, and then, uh, you know, most recently, um, it, it, you know, people have been asking, um, you know, is the great stagnation potentially ending soon? Uh, is there reason to be to be excited? So one, let me just zoom out and say, were you on board with with how sort of Tyler described the great stagnation? And uh, I'm curious for your you know take on h- how did it happen? Uh, you know, was it a mismeasuring? And when will we know when, when it's over? <laughs> right. It did happen. Uh, the productivity in America slowed down dramatically around 1973. So the website, what the fuck happened in 1971 is slightly misnamed. It was 73. Um, and what, what so, happened in 1973? Uh, the oil shock. Got it. And so we had, you know, our, if you look back at what our leading industries, really our tech industries at that time were based on, they were based on using a lot of oil to make very big, powerful engines of things and more energy sucking appliances for your house. That was tech. Everything was just very energy intensive. And so the the abrupt but but that was disguising a problem that had been building for years so when we switched to oil when we switched from cold oil uh in like the 10s 20s ish it was a massive bonanza for productivity and when people ask why was the great depression actually the biggest increase for productivity ever i bet it's just cause of shifting to oil we shifted everything to oil because oil was super cheap. It was energy dense. You could just easily pull it out of the ground and transport it anywhere. And you could carry it around with you, which is harder for coal. So we switched, you know, the, the industrial revolution happened when we switched from like wood to coal, right? Wood and animal fat to coal. And then, then we switched to oil. And I think we, that was the, I forget if they call it the second or third industrial revolution, whatever the, like, um, you know, the, the, the internal combustion engine slash everything is electrified revolution. Uh, everything's electrified actually we did with coal, but then we allowed, you know, oil for other things. Internal combustion was big. So we had this big shift, but then the next thing was supposed to be nuclear and it never happened. Hmm. And we can argue about why it never happened. And people will be like, oh, because people were too cautious and government regulation, blah, blah, blah. And other people are like, no, it's because the financing was just too expensive. Government had to actually foot the bill for all these reactors. And, you know, they weren't willing to do it. Other people are like, no, it's unsafe, blah, 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 Chernobyl, blah, blah, blah. Whatever your preferred explanation for why we didn't switch to nuclear fission as our big next thing, it didn't happen. And so that is just a fact. And I mean, it happened a little bit, a little bit more in France. um, But overall, we didn't find ourselves in the nuclear age like we expected to in the 50s. And um, because of that, I mean, you know, nuclear fuel is incredibly dense, energy dense. I really like energy density, but it it is limited because it doesn't count the, the volume of the extraction machinery. So you can have like a battery powered leaf blower that's actually a lot smaller than a uh, a gas powered leaf blower because the mechanism, the engine, the internal combustion engine of the is bigger. Anyway, but the point is that nuclear was just so super dense. You know, you can nuclear submarines run forever, right? Yeah. We could, and and so the fact that we didn't shift to nuclear like cars was that ever going to happen? I don't know, but. I, I, you can say we should have shifted to nuclear reactors for power to replace coal, but it's hard to argue we should have, we would have ever gone to nuclear cars. Right. No one, I mean, I think the Soviet Union did think about it and they were like, even the Soviet Union was like, no. <laughs> and, so, and so nuclear cars never happened. And so we've been coasting. And after World War II, which really was a war for oil more than people realize, we, we won World War II. And as a result, uh, oil was very cheap for the whole world for like a couple decades after World War II. We had this big productivity boom. Do you know Ben Reinhardt? He's a friend of mine. Yeah, of course. Ben Reinhardt. Yep. So Ben will, loves to show this like, I forget, it's the Henry Adams curve or something where like per capita energy use just goes like up and up and up and up and up in the 60s, 50s, 60s, whatever. And then in 1973, it's like pfft, because of the oil crisis, because it couldn't go on. Like, 
yes, I know the oil crisis was about Mideast war to begin with. Well, both were, but then really what it was about was just supplier powers about these guys realizing, Hey, everything runs on oil and we own all the oil. Let's raise the price. And so they did that. And of course, OPEC didn't last forever. And eventually was the cartel was broken. But I think that that made everyone realize that the age of cheap oil was over. From then on, we entered this world of energy scarcity. And I think that's when we shifted to really going for energy, uh, non-energy intensive technologies like IT. IT uses energy, but at least until Bitcoin, it didn't use a lot of energy. Yeah, And so um, Bitcoin, we can talk about later, but, but then, so what happened was you had the shift from like classic sci-fi to cyberpunk. You had everything being about um, at bits instead of atoms. And then you, people just gave up the idea of cheaper and cheaper energy. And, um, and then we had to retool for a while, but then starting and, and really the IT boom started in the eighties. And I think people don't realize that, but um but it really got going in the 90s and it started showing up big in all the productivity statistics. And we got this decade and a half of high productivity growth back, basically, from IT and um, the, uh, the IT revolution. And then that petered out really abruptly in 2004 or five. I mean, so four was like the last year of high productivity growth. And then 2005, it was like <laughs> just craters. And it's not clear why that happened. I, I don't know why it happened, but it happened. And so that's the, that's the quote unquote, great stagnation. And it of course coincides with other trends and things like education flattening out. Um, you know, when you can educate your populace more and more, you keep getting more and more productive workers. But then when you start like educating them into their thirties, you're started you're eating into too much of their productive life and you just can't give them more years of education. We can try to improve the quality of it. We can't just give them more, keep giving everybody more years and demand everyone get a PhD or something. It just doesn't work. Uh, although I guess it does work in data science. <laughs> but like, okay, so that maybe, but, but in general, that's really tough to keep increasing education. Also, our population started to age more. A lot of things happened, but then there was some sort of technological stagnation that probably set in around 2005 and around much of the world. And it's not clear why that happened. And so that is the great stagnation. But Tyler was always really subtle about this because Tyler always said, he said, it's going to end. This isn't going to last forever. And I think that there's no force of the universe that makes productivity grow at a constant exponential rate forever. It doesn't build on itself in, you know, like a reproductive model. There's no, you know, it doesn't even build on itself like capital does. I mean, capital, you can use capital to produce more capital. So that's why exponential growth is like typically a thing. There's no real reason why productivity has to grow exponentially. What, uh, when will we know if it's over and, and what are you, uh, I know you, you were to post recently questioning your optimism. <laughs> right. Uh, t- t- talk a bit about that. Well, it's always good to be questioning yourself, but I'm still optimistic. We'll know it's over about, 10 years after it starts to end. <laughs> and so Robert Solo famously said, you can see the computer revolution everywhere, but in the productivity statistics. And I think that was in 1987. If you look at now, 10 years after he wrote that, everyone was interested in like the 70s and early 80s history of Silicon Valley when all this stuff was being invented. So it takes a while for this stuff to actually make it into the productivity numbers. But I think that we can guess and we can be hopeful of course, AI is the thing everybody's interested in. It's like suddenly we learned how to run much more effective regressions on everything. And like, I don't know how that happened. And I'm not sure anyone knows how that happened, but it happened. So that's cool. So mRNA, of course, you know, like just saved us from the pandemic after like everything else failed to save us from the pandemic. Along comes some scientists and just bam. And then tomorrow they're vaccinating for cancer. <laughs> and so that's, so that's a big deal. You know, it's going to gonna help a lot. Um, CRISPR, of course, is coming. You know, we'll be able to engineer everybody with natural purple eyes. That's going to be a big productivity boost. <laughs> geothermal? I don't know about geothermal, but but solar and batteries are the biggie. And that's why I saved the best for last. That is the giant general purpose technology that's going to change our world because everybody right now thinks about solar and batteries in the old framework of green energy. They think of it as, oh, you can get energy without carbon. We no no climate change. And then you know, we can like get the eco-socialists to shut up possibly eventually. So then, yes. And then we also don't roast ourselves and California doesn't burn down with wildfires, although it probably will in the interim. But anyway, the point being that that's how we think about solar and batteries. We think about it in the framework of green energy. But in fact, 
And if you follow Ramez Nam, who's the best guy ever, just in general, yeah. um, Ramez was on this before anybody else. And green energy is now cheap energy. So solar and batteries have passed the point where they're just good for reducing carbon emissions. And they're now actually giving us cheaper energy. So like to build out solar plants in many places is actually cheaper than to continue to operate your old existing coal plants. That's nuts. That's insanely cheap. And battery cars are still not as, not quite as uh, good energy-wise industrial as an industrial as uh, internal combustion engine cars, but they're getting there really fast. And you know, there's scaling effects where if companies just build a lot, it gets cheaper. And there's also efficiency. So battery efficiency has doubled. Um, that's a really big deal. Uh, new, and then that's even discounting all the sort of gee whiz, whiz bang, new inventions that are coming in the pipeline, like solid state batteries might happen. And if that happens, it's just another giant leap. And then you've got 10 more years of progress, at least right there, 15 yeah. years, whatever. And so it's really hard to predict their future of technology. I mean, Moore's law is kind of this aberration where like, oh, we observe this one dimensional increase in this one thing that keeps going at this constant exponential rate that held for a few decades. That's pretty cool. Uh, that's rare. That's yeah. a very rare situation and you can see that by looking at all the other moore's law analogs out there <laughs> so um so solar and batteries are getting so damn cheap and good that they're going to give us something we haven't had since the 20s which is a newer a, a better form of energy a, actually cheaper energy than anything that has gone before and so i think adam's innovation is going to come back and i think the point that i realized this was when i was watching a video of remember the portland protests and the yeah. trump sent these federal agents out to portland to like fight the kids right and uh, they're led by a guy named chad wolf <laughs> and so <laughs> like, you can't make this shit up and then so anyway chad wolf sends his guys out to portland and they stand in front of this courthouse that they think like the kids are going to burn and they'd like fight them off with tear gas and stuff. And then the kids bring, and of course these kids are like 30, but whatever these yeah. kids bring electric leaf blowers <laughs> to the protests and blow the tear gas back at the federal agents who have to run away from their own tear gas. <laughs> um, but they didn't predict that because you previously, you couldn't do that because a gas powered leaf blower, you know, is too big and unwieldy. To, to bring out and a cord leaf blower, there's nowhere to plug it in. And so instead batteries changed it. And then I think the other thing that made me realize this is there was this film called uh, Murderbots or no, uh, Slaughterbots, I'm sorry, Slaughterbots. Do you see that? No. Right. So it's about uh, assassin quadcopters, assassin drones. You just program it with facial recognition, show it somebody's face, they, it goes around and it just like explodes on them and they die. Yeah. Oh no bad so that's going to be a real problem but understanding that like the fact that we can just fill the air and the world with tiny little electric battery powered things and that's where this energy density thing i was talking about comes in because you're looking at you know batteries are so much less energy dense than oil and yet you're able to make so much smaller things with batteries that work and so drones are big and electric appliances are big electric cars are obviously big i mean elon musk is richer than god now He's doing a leveraged buyout of God, I hear. And, um, and so then, like, that's huge. Yeah, so it's just really, I'm so excited about this trend. I'm excited about all these technologies. I'm most excited about that one. Yeah. And so Patrick Olson and, and Michael Nielsen came, came out with this, this post a few years ago about, you know, science sl slowing down. W were you sympathetic with, with that argument? I guess what I'm curious about is how much of it is the science or the tech that's been slowing down versus our ability to commercialize it, or has it just been both? Oh, so that's a really good question. Um, so first of all, I'm about to write a post soon, um, which will be the last in like a multi-post series in which I sort of rebut stagnation arguments. So, so Patrick and Michael overstated their case, I think. I think that there isn't actually evidence that science is slowing down. And I take issue with some of the evidence that they present, because I think that some of those measures naturally tend to be past biased. For example, Nobel Prize winners, we would expect, so Nobel Prize winning is a cue. You know, you can only give it to like three people per year, right? And you can only give it while people are alive. So if you had an accelerating rate of discovery, you'd see the people who get the prizes get older and older as the queue gets longer and longer, right? So then, and of course, the eventually the queue complete, the system completely collapses because everyone dies before they can get their prize. And then they have to make it all posthumous, but then, um, and change the will. 
of Nobel. But anyway, the point is that like that's actually consistent with accelerating innovation is the the increasing age of Nobel Prize winners. And so a lot of the other things, like when you just go around asking people, like, when were the great discoveries, discoveries become greater as they get built on more and become more foundational. You're not foundational the day that the discovery is made. Yeah. You're just new and cool. But you're you become foundational when people figure out a thing to do with it. Like the first people who made like electric current, they're like, oh, neat. I can shock myself. But like, you know, I can make this 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 jar fizz or something. But like then, you know, now, of course, it's fundamental to everything. So you, so that's also past biased. And so yeah. that's so those are the points I'm going to make. But I think there is something, you know, worrying that's happening along those lines, which is actually we're probably keeping science going at about the same rate, but it's costing us more and more. So there is evidence that the rate of the, that the cost of technological progress is going up and we can still keep it going by shoveling in more and more money. Although the endless frontier act just kind of got gutted, which makes me really mad. And we can, we can continue doing that for, I would say, you know, 30 more years easily. We can just keep shoveling more money at this stuff. It's not that expensive. Uh, we spend a lower percent of GDP on R and D than we used to. We can just go back to that old percentage. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not going to eat our entire economy, but it's a, for the long term. that's a big worry. It's not what happened in 2005, I think, but it's a long-term worry. And so I think in that, in the more generalized sense, you know, Patrick and Michael's concerns are, are right. It's just that it hasn't happened yet. Yep. But so the signs are there. Yeah. When, when Peter Thiel talks about the, I guess his um, analyses for or the great stagnation, I think he talks about regulation and, and culture. And I heard from you more, you know, demographics, you know, the part about energy, education, are you, do you less weight those things than, than Peter weighs them perhaps? Well, I don't know. I mean, economics sort of is a cult that indoctrinates you not to believe that culture is important on its own. And to think that like economic stuff determines cultural stuff is just a response to economics. Um, so I naturally think that way because I was indoctrinated into that cult <laughs> in graduate school. But that said, I think a, a more a more nuanced and more a fairer version of that statement is not that culture doesn't autonomously happen and affect things, but that it's really, really hard to measure those effects, to predict those effects, and to observe those effects. Culture probably does make a lot a big amount of difference, but I'll tell you when I when I moved to Japan, I found that Japanese culture was insanely different from what people said it was. Yeah. Even from what people in Japan said it was. Like Japanese theorists of of Japanese culture are just as sort of, you know, kind of, I don't know, diluted as like, I don't know, Tom Cotton saying something about Western civilization or something here. It's like, have you taken a walk in Western civilization lately? Do you know what it's like? It's, you know, it's people don't get out that much. And so I found Japanese culture to be, for example, I found Japanese culture to be extremely individualistic when almost everyone on the planet says Japanese culture is collectivist. I was like, no. And that was like the biggest one. It was like, hmm. Japanese people were more likely than Americans to go off and noodle off and do their own thing. Interesting. Whether it came to fashion or work or anything like it was more difficult to get Japanese people. Well, it, I don't want to generalize. I don't want to start pulling out cultural stereotypes, but then I would say that Japanese people would be more likely to follow codes and like rules. Yeah. And I remember um, my, uh, my ex-girlfriend got a new camera and I remembered watching with utter amazement as she opened, before she opened the camera, she read the entire manual. <laughs> she RTFM'd. <laughs> like she just sat down and read it like a book and then it's okay. I'm ready to use this camera now. Oh, what the wow. hell was that? And like an American would be like, throw away the manual, yeah. open the thing. Then if I can't figure out something, Google a PDF of the manual. Yeah. <laughs> or just ask a forum. Like that's what we do. We're I think Americans are are generally, and I again this is just big generalizations based yeah. on personal experience. Americans are much more likely to like look at what their neighbor's doing. Yeah. Whereas Japanese people are much more likely to like look at the code, look at the manual. Yeah. The, the procedure. And but, so that, the, but that's my, anyway. Yeah. That, that makes sense. You can't tell about culture. Right. Like that's the thing. Like it probably exists, but it's like so hard to measure. Yeah. Another. Anyway. You touched on it a little bit and your, your Patrick uh, Carlson interview w w was, was great. I'm, I'm curious if after that interview, you know, I guess it's been a couple of months, if there were any other disagreements you had with, with some of his points or any sort of reflections you've had on some of the topics that you discussed in the inter interview. I mean, I think that he has successfully convinced me that 
sort of like government funding processes for science are more broken than I realized. I always knew that there were all these problems, you know, with grant writing and stuff, but then he has raised a lot of problems. And I, I don't know if he invented those ideas or, or, you know, got them from, um, uh, you know, the, the various bloggers who work on this, like, uh, uh, Jose, Luis What's his name? that Nintel, the blogger yeah. Nintel, um, which he just goes by Nintel. But anyway, but, but yeah, so like that, that has broadly convinced me. Yeah, I'm convinced, but I'm also convinced that we wouldn't be talking about the problems in science funding and things like that if we were still, if it was still super cheap to just pick the low hanging fruit of innovation. Right. So I think that the science slowing down thing is why we're trying to like ring out, you know, some efficiency gains from the existing system. Yeah. You know, because, because it's getting more and more expensive to keep throwing money at it. Speaking of sort of, uh, you know, efficiency. Uh, let, let's talk about uh, monetary policy and, and, and inflation. Why, why are people um, thinking the wrong way about inflation, or what's sort of the, the right way to think about it? Make sense of uh, of inflation and what's well. What's- yeah. So, so I think that when people think about inflation, they often think about um, like specific price of stuff: the price of lumber, the price of used cars. Those are important, but to be honest, that kind of inflation is never very big, and it doesn't last that long. The energy shocks were were a bit of a special case because we were so oil dependent and oil went up for so much for so long that that it was the most significant sort of cost push shock in a in a single like you know commodity or whatever. But stuff like the price of lumber is never going to cause big sustained inflation. The only thing that would really cause big sustained inflation is if the Fed decided that it wasn't interested in restraining inflation, and if an episode like that with this brief transient shock of lumber prices and car prices or whatever exposed the fact that the Fed was no longer an inflation fighter. If that happened and everyone was like, oh my God, the Fed no longer cares about inflation, then inflation could actually happen. Like big, damaging, serious, long-term inflation. And so, I th- yeah, that's what I'm, that's the only thing I'm scared of. So as long as the Fed, as long as the Fed is not willing to let inflation happen, inflation won't happen. Yeah. Do you uh, agree with, should the Fed basically adopt Scott Sumner's recommendations around GDP level targeting? Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, the truth is that the Fed will not stick to any rule that it officially adopts. So there was this, you know, Sumner came through a, an intellectual tradition that was very focused on monetary policy rules, constraining the Fed with rules. That has been pretty much debunked. Rules will always give way to discretion. The Fed will always say, well, you know, this week we're getting yelled at because the economy is bad. Let's do some QE. This week we're getting yelled at because inflation is bad. Let's raise some rates. That's really how the Fed works. Like they they respond to popular pressure, but not because they're worried about like people getting mad at them. It's because they actually care. Like if people are upset about inflation, the Fed will get upset out of empathy. <laughs> I think they're, they're better people than, than you think. Um, but then the, the Fed will never follow like a simple rule like that. It just won't. Yeah. There's this uh, blogger, Lynn Alden, who um, basically argues that um, her case is, it, oh, she says, we'll, we'll, we'll see sort of runaway inflation, maybe not now, maybe not in the next few years, but at, at some point, basically because um, her argument is that whenever sovereign debt to GDP has reached over 130%, 51 out of 52 times that debt was not paid back in real terms, meaning there was inflation. And I think the only time in which um, there wasn't, it was, it was, it was Japan and that had a very right. different economic situation. Does that right. sound reasonable to you? So, so I don't know about these rules and cutoffs and stuff like that. Yeah. That's, you know, that's cherry picked. Um, but then also it all comes from like previous, like, you know, something's different about Japan. If you have slow productivity growth, if you have slow population growth, especially population shrinkage, it's just a lot. Also, whether you own the debt, whether you owe the debt externally or internally. So like if Japan Japan owes all its debt to Japanese people, the Japanese government. And so all the people on the hook for that debt are Japanese because they're, ta- they're Japanese taxpayers, right? And all the people who are owed the debt are Japanese. So simply reshuffling claims between Japanese people would make the debt go poof, right? Most of these cases, almost all these cases are cases where the borrowing was external. So I wouldn't look at like specific cutoffs like that. But that said... I do think that the big, the scary case for inflation is if the Fed starts either, you know, directly monetarily financing government deficits or indirectly financing it by keeping interest rates essentially zero. So the, the you know, Treasury, so the, the federal government can sort of uh, roll over its debt infinitely at zero cost. 
And so that's if the if the Fed commits to keeping interest rates low so the Fed so that the government can costlessly roll over its its debt, that's a thing called fiscal dominance. And so that could prevent that could make the Fed weak on inflation. And then everyone's like, oh God, the Fed's not controlling inflation. Ah, raise prices. Ah. And so that could happen. And so I think that government debt, the Fed sort of becoming complicit in government, in infinite government borrowing is the scary scenario, no matter which form it comes in. Yeah. And then, so I think that the worry about government debt and the interaction between debt and monetary policy is exactly right. But I wouldn't necessarily pick like a, a solid threshold like that. Yeah. You've written about why climate economics has has failed. And I'm, I'm curious for you to unpack that argument. I'm also curious for your perspective on Andrew McAfee's book, More From Less, where basically he argues that as countries industrialize, they, they uh, you know, they have more energy, you know, uh, usage and it's tied with consumption. But when they reach a certain level of, of wealth, it starts to uncouple um, and, and it actually starts to reverse. And I'm, I'm curious if you think that um, that's accurate. Well, he's, he's right about that. Um, that doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with why climate economics failed. Well, maybe a little bit tangentially, well, but uh, yeah, right, so. I mean, Andy's right about that. Cool. Like there is decoupling. Um, we need a little bit more decoupling than has happened. We need, um, it to happen earlier within the industrialization process. So countries need to start industrializing using solar power from day one, instead of switching to it once they get rich. Um, and they need to, unfortunately that's been made possible by the, the cheapness of it. And so India now is like switching to solar power really rapidly, not because India gives a shit, but because in, you know, because it's cheaper Yeah. and they'll do what's cheap. And so, um, so that's, that's a big deal. Uh, on to, about the failure of climate economics, that's a really interesting question. So the reason climate economics didn't have a lot of useful things to say for many decades and now is just barely starting to get to the point where they have interesting things to say. But the reason they didn't was because economists view the world in terms of trade-offs and are taught. Remember the economist cult that I'm part of? Well, yeah. one of the elements of that cult is always thinking in terms of trade-offs. We've got to find this interior solution. And this can lead economists astray. So for example, maybe there's ways we can like help people out of poverty that will also make them more productive, like that basic income experiment in Stockton ended up actually making people work full-time more. Economists don't like free lunches, but free lunches sometimes exist. And so that's a free lunch. You know, you just, I mean, it's not, it's not free because you got, got to get tax money or whatever to pay for it, but it's not, you don't have this trade-off between income and employment. You don't have this thing where you give people $500 a month or whatever, and then, or a week, or I don't even remember how much. I don't remember whether it was a month or a week. might've been a week. You give them a bunch of money and then they, they, um, they work more. Amazing. No trade-off. It was just a freebie. Economists don't like that. They don't like making models where that happens because it's too easy. Economists don't like doing easy things. They like doing hard things that allow them to sort of signal that they're math jocks and be like, you know, mathier than thou. And that's how they get prestige. Like with, you know, Harvard or something. I don't know. But so, so economists wanted to think that there was a trade-off between the environment and the economy. Technology obviates that trade-off. It doesn't obviate the trade-off, but it makes the trade-off far less severe. So in a world of cheap solar and batteries, there's just far less environmental damage you have to do to keep your economy running. Yes, there's going to be some like chemical runoff from mines and whatnot, but like the amount of environmental damage that will be done for a given amount of GDP will be much lower. So, and the point is that funding the development of technology can actually make the technology happen. There's, uh, there's evidence that until about the year 2000, it was government funding that drove cost declines in solar. And then after that, it was private investment. That's and scaling effects that drove cost declines in solar. But it's been for like, you know, 30 years, it was just government. Had government not been pumping money, money, money into solar research, we would not be where we are today on the verge of a new energy and uh, Adams technology revolution. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so I think that that's what economists got wrong. They thought that their role was to caution people not to let climate change get too severe and not to let anti-climate change regulations get too severe either. When in fact, there was like stuff they completely ignored that you could do that could make regulations less strict, even as it made the economy better. I want to segue, we were talking about demographics earlier, and you've written a little bit about this, but, but I mean, um, and a lot of people have, why do rich people have fewer kids? Or why, why as countries get richer, why, do, why does their fertility rates decline? 
Oh, so there's a number of reasons. One is because um, women's education and access to contraception is the big driver of fertility declines. Women never wanted to have five kids each. Like they do not want that inherently. That is a pain in the ass. And it prevents you from like having a career. It, it more importantly, it, it probably kills you. I don't know. I mean, like it's a giant burden. Women really wanted to have like two kids. Men, they didn't care how much, how many kids they had because they just impregnate the women and be like, okay, your problem, woman. <laughs> Maybe they'd pay for it if they were, had the money. But, but then when women get education contraception, like, hey, I don't have to, you know, make babies for you my whole life. And then they don't because, you know, they're, it's, it's uh, contraception education or women's liberation in this way. The other thing is that in poor countries, you have people move from farms to cities. That really reduces fertility a lot because you don't need kids to work the farm anymore. Right. Kids were like auto-generated farmhands. It was like having a kid in, in like an agricultural, you know, situation is like, is like building an Android to do your farming for you. Remember at the beginning of Star Wars, that's Luke Skywalker. They're like, hey, no, don't go off fighting evil. Sit around doing farm labor for us. And then the stormtrooper's like, no, we kill you. And that's how he gets out of it. But right. like, that's, that's why people have kids in poor agrarian countries. So there's, those are the two biggest factors in why fertility changes. There's other factors like it gets expensive to have a kid or like, you know, more of your kids survive. So you don't have to have a bunch of kids as like an insurance policy to make sure you have someone to take care of you in old age, when infant mortality and child mortality go down. There's other reasons too. And they all correlate with income. Yeah. I, so I wonder if like the environment, if there's a decoupling that happens as, as people become even wealthier or, or, or like, could that trend reverse? I suppose Maybe. wealthy or unlikely? I don't know. The, the answer is that nobody really knows about this. Like demographers don't know. My bet is that artificial womb technology, like in the, the books of Lois McMaster Bujold, would make a big difference here. Yeah. I want to talk to another post you had where you, you describe an exchange between uh, Nickel and, and Pinker. And, um, and you, you say that Nickel is critiquing Pinker for, for claiming that uh, free market economics has, has reduced uh, global poverty. You uh, mean Hickel. Hickel, sorry. Yes, Hickel. Can you uh, can you unpack that? that, that and, and you basically say both are wrong. Uh, can you unpack that that exchange and, and why you right. think they're both wrong? That's right. So um, a lot of people look at the so so until around 1980, rich countries were pulling away from poor countries. The rate had decelerated a bit, uh, which they were poor pulling away, but they were still pulling away in terms of GDP per capita. That is not what economics says should happen. Economics says if you're a poor country, there's much more opportunity at rich. I mean, just think about taking, think about China, how that happened, right? Or think about taking any poor country and just having them do things the way we do them here, then they'll be rich, right? So then it's, there's so much opportunity. And yet the rich countries were pulling away from the poor countries until around 1980. And then around 1980, it screeches to a halt and then starts slowly going in the other direction and maybe faster now and faster. Um, so the developing world started catching up, not evenly not, you know, yeah, not evenly catching up, but catching up overall. And so you see countries like Malaysia and Poland and Turkey that are now practically developed countries. And we don't, people don't even know how to think of them anymore because they're, they're coming up. They're like 75% of the income of like a developed country. And like, they're, they're getting there, right? They're on the cusp of developed countryness and they certainly are industrialized. You know, if you ask, what do these people do? Like Turkey's building cars, Poland's building cars, um, Malaysia's building electronics. That's what these countries are doing. And so you had this, this growth and with that growth, and of course you had India and of course you had China. And so with that growth, you got massive poverty reduction and some people look at it and they're like, yay, capitalism. That's what it was. Of course, capitalism helped in some places. I mean, like obviously China, where you went from a command economy to a, a partially market economy, that was a very good change. So going capitalist actually helped China a lot. Uh, India, it's less clear. People argue back and forth about whether or not their economic liberalization is what started them on the growth path. But you know, you could make an argument for it. And so then some countries like capitalism, adding some capitalism is countries with a strong command economy, adding capitalism just great. But then a lot of these countries, like Malaysia was always capitalist, you know, and a lot of these countries in Southeast Asia that are growing fast now, were always capitalist, not Vietnam, but like Indonesia, whatever, like, and so when you, it's not capitalism per se. Also in Latin America, you've never had really rapid growth. You've had sort of like steady, slow, linear growth, 
But then, um, and Latin America is not that poor of a place. It's sort of middle income. But then Latin American had some of the highest levels of inequality in the world. And they elected leaders, they got fed up and they elected leaders who did a bunch of redistribution. And that redistribution and also like efforts at like education and health and under, under, these things have really reduced inequality in Latin America, not to where it needs to be, but reduced it a lot. And that's not, I can't call that capitalism. So in some places like China, China is the best case for capitalism. Weirdly, the lefties don't like, you know, talking about China and these statistics because they want to think China is like a successful socialist communist country, which is bullshit. When Thomas Piketty, you know, Thomas Piketty? Yeah, of course. When he wrote a book about inequality in China, they banned his book, <laughs> kicked him out. <laughs> so like, you know, China, China's not, uh, I mean, I don't know what communist means, but China's not socialist. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's pretty hyper-capitalist in many ways. And so, but anyway, it's, you know, it's a mix of things, but to just look at this, this progress, so many countries did industrial policy that was very successful to look at this progress and say, like, yeah, capitalism is just very, is, isn't ill-informed, you know, or, or just not looking at it carefully enough. And when you say they did industrial policy and it was very successful, what exactly did they do or, or what comprises successful industrial policy? Right. So have you read the book, How Asia Works? I've not, but it was on my list to ask you about what, what's there. everyone, everyone read the book, How Asia Works, always. Um, that's why the answer is that we don't exactly know universal formula, but the closest thing we've come is something called export discipline. So interestingly, Studwell, Joe Studwell, who wrote that book also argues for, um, land reform, uh, in agrarian society. He says, that's like the first step. But once you've done that, he says, export discipline is the key. Export discipline means that you promote exports, but you don't just promote them forever. You promote them only temporarily to see who is who to push your domestic companies to compete in world markets and to weed out the wheat from the chaff and to see who is actually able to compete in a global market. And also doing that often requires sort of um, accumulating foreign technology, importing foreign technology. So you saw Korean car companies trying very, very hard to get technology from Japanese car companies. And so the export discipline also means that companies that fail in these international markets, you just completely withdraw support for and wind them up. It's like you sucked. So there were Korean car companies that didn't succeed that died. Yeah. But then like Hyundai or whatever succeeded. So that I think is the, we don't know what works, but that's the closest idea we can come come up with. What, what do you think we should do in the US? That's a great question. Um, I think that first of all, we need to spend a lot more money on science. <laughs> spend a lot of money on science. Uh, specialized technical education in local areas is a thing that localities can do. So towns that have managed to really revive themselves from like the Rust Belt and Great Recession have often invited some big companies. So like, you know, some, you'll invite like a manufacturer of small aircraft, right? And then you'll provide basically like community college type schools in the area where people who are out of high school can just go to learn all the stuff you'd need to know to work in a factory like that. It's not just dumb assembly line work anymore. It's, you need to know stuff. And so the, this local vocational education really prepares people for those industry specific kind of jobs. As much as Americans want everyone to go to a four-year college and like study history, that's not happening. And most people are just going to want jobs. So that's a that's a, another thing we can do besides this. Uh, I also think export discipline is just a great idea. I think that there's, although explicit export subsidies are prohibited under World Trade Organization rules, we can do a lot of sort of like legal unofficial things, which other countries do. So we can subsidize exports a lot. And then, but only temporarily, we can say, okay, if you're willing to start exporting, you get a boost for this many years. And th so this would restore our trade balance more at equilibrium? I don't know that it would. I think it would help. Oh, I think the trade balance is also determined by currency issues. Uh, I think that's a big deal. Where do you differ from the uh, the Bill Janeway and Maria Mazzucato, not necessarily to lump them in the same, but a, a view of the world? So I know Mariana Mazzucato's ideas, but Janeway's pretty eclectic. What were you thinking of? Well, just a strong, I think they uh, they both advocate for just a strong role for, you know, public sector involvement, uh, both in terms of taking, like, you know, deserves credit for the past, but also, you know, going forward in, in the future. And just think that, you know, perhaps Silicon Valley underrates how, you know, the, the role of government. I don't think deserves credit for the past is that important of a thing we need to talk about because if government does these things, the only reason to give credit is so we remember not to have government stop doing those things. But government's incredibly important. I mean, you look at um, 
Silicon Valley, of course, the internet with DARPA, uh, VLSI, the very large semiconductor, what's the I stand for? I forget. That was like an important sort of development in the chip world. Um, you can just trace a lot of things to government-funded research. And I believe, um, I was just telling Ben Reinhardt about this the other day, I, was tell I believe that innovation is a pipeline. And at the beginning of the pipeline, you have like very basic discoveries like quantum mechanics. And at the very end of the pipeline, you have specific you know, products like a Tesla. And like there's a whole chain of, of you know, more concrete applied stuff from quantum mechanics to a Tesla. But if you never had a if you never had quantum mechanics, you probably wouldn't have a Tesla. Yeah. You'd have you'd have like, I don't know. Well, maybe you'd still have Tesla, but it would be crappier. And so there's a whole in innovation supply chain. And the idea that it's government versus private sector is usually wrong. There are some sort of intermediate steps in the chain where you can where they do they can substitute for each other. Like you could have Bell Labs discovering something that MIT might otherwise discover, or you can have, I mean, like in certain fields, like private sector is doing a lot of the basic research. So for example, um, if you look at the percentage of, of AI papers that are published by either Google Brain, DeepMind or Google AI, it is like all, <laughs> it's, they're, the, they're the new Bell Labs, but just for AI. You know, so sometimes the, the private sector is gonna do that. Um, as you get more toward applied things, the private sector does more. Like next generation chip stuff is like really deep electrical engineering stuff, but it's being done by like Intel, TSMC, whatnot. And that's just pure, re that's research. And so, but then if you look at things like quantum mechanics or whatever, like very basic stuff, the structure of DNA, that's all government. Yeah. Or just people tinkering around for fun on their own, which is even more basic than government. Um, so that's, and then when you look at stuff like products that it's like it's almost all pri it's pretty much all private yeah and in between it sort of shades from more government to more private but i guess and of course there's a there's a simple easy principle for understanding why this happens which is uh capturability so the less capturable thing is the more it will be done by the government or not at all yeah because if you can't you know i mean like look at bell labs look at xerox park they're like i think they still exist nominally but like those yeah. organizations are effectively dead and uh it's because their innovations did make some money for their companies, but not enough to maybe justify the research outlay. Yeah. And so there's been this, there's interesting paper about the decline of private labs. And it's like, well, private labs, like they did a great job at discovering things. It just wasn't necessarily worthwhile for the companies because yeah. you discover something and then your competitor ends up using it. That's yeah. what is real. You know, the, the scary part is the competition. The more something can leak out, the less capturable it is and the more government needs to come in and do it, which is because government doesn't care about the credit. In fact, the defining feature of government is that it doesn't care about the credit. Yeah. That's or right. shouldn't anyway. That's really interesting criteria. When we talk about the MMTers, uh, the, oh, yeah. what, what do they get right and what, what do they get wrong? Well, so you have to understand MMT is not really an economic theory. There's no actual economic theory there. Um, there's just, there's a set of statements and declarations like there is no government budget constraint. <laughs> Often these statements are poorly defined. Whereas if you keep arguing with them, they'll like, they won't exactly know what they're saying. Uh, but they're incredibly aggressive online. will denounce anyone who criticizes them, including denouncing me after they hear this podcast, but that's fine. They do that all the time. So what MMT people are is, is meme warriors. And macro is a meme war because it's so hard to get definitive established facts in macro that essentially things get done by people shouting <laughs> and MMT is very good at shouting. Even Stephanie Kelton, like even the most, uh, you know, the people, especially Stephanie Kelton, she's the best at this. <laughs> yeah. Stephanie Kelton is like the ultimate meme Lord of MMT. <laughs> I mean, yes, there's like guys like Nathan Tankus and Rohan Gray, but like, no, Stephanie Kelton is the, is the Lord of MMT memeing. Got it. Um, yeah, like these people never write down like a formal model of the economy. One time I saw someone do it and it was the most ridiculous <laughs> thing. It was like, we will compel everyone into slavery and this will be good. And it was just a psychotic. And so that's why they never do it um, because there is no formal model. There's no real theory of MMT. It's just me more. It's just getting people who might otherwise think you know, negatively, instinctively about government deficits because they think government's like a household. Look at all this money we're borrowing. Ah, you know, and then they they might think that. And then, but the MMT people are like, no, debt is good. And come up with all these other memes, which are, you know, frankly bullshit, but like, but they're useful. They're useful for countering people's 
inherent tendency toward austerity. Yeah, interesting. So do they get anything right by accident? <laughs> well, uh, the, the government's true budget constraint is inflation. That's right. That is attributable to Abba Lerner. So all the stuff MMT people get right is attributable to one guy. His name is Abba Lerner. He did his work in like the early 20th century. He was like the real government budget constraint is inflation because if you just have the central bank cover the treasury's debts, the only thing that could go wrong is that people decide that the currency is out of whack and decide to raise prices a lot. Yeah. And so that that MMT people get that right because Abba Lerner got it right. And um, Abba Lerner said once inflation starts, the only way to stop it is austerity. Well, he's wrong about that. But if the if you're in a situation of fiscal dominance where the Fed's kind of being jerked around by what the treasury decides to borrow and the Fed just can't raise interest rates for fear of like spiking the government's borrowing cost and causing a default. Because of that, if the Fed actually becomes cowed and starts acting in an MMT-like way, or at least the way they would like the Fed to act, then the only way to stop runaway inflation would be austerity, punishing austerity. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, that's what they get right and wrong. Yeah. M- moving to, uh, and gearing towards to closing in a few minutes, M- moving towards foreign policy, do you um, ascribe to the or what's your reaction to the Peter Zahan view of the world, uh, which basically states that uh, it's no longer uh, in America's sort of uh, economic interest uh, to patrol uh, or, or to maintain the, the global order, um, or maybe it was never in their economic interest, but it was in their political interest, and now it's less in their political interest. Um, and so America is going to retreat significantly. And he basically says that countries that depended on, uh, you know, America to, to maintain the seas, to patrol the seas, I, I, China and a few others are going to really struggle and c- countries that did well before the order was imposed uh, are going to do well afterwards. He says China's going to struggle? Yeah, he's gonna, China's going to struggle because I think like so, some large percentage of their oil comes from the Persian Gulf and we yeah. patrol the seas to make it safe. And thus that trade route isn't going to be... Uh, is it they're going to struggle that's, to... that's no problem china will just build a navy they already have a big navy that's not going to happen but um he's absolutely right that the united states does not have the size to be the hegemon anymore and of course we have internal divisions too but even if we didn't have those we're just too small like china is four times as big as us once they grow we're just a small country then uh india is four times as big as us as well together those countries are eight times as big as the united states actually a little more and so contain you know we can't keep mastery over the world we can keep we could keep mastery over the world when it was just you know poor countries and then some small european and like east asian countries um maybe some gulf countries but now when china like outclasses us in terms of total gdp size we can't patrol them see where i don't get what zayan's saying it's like actually no the problem is it's not going to be china the loser it's going to be china replacing us in some places yeah um yeah so i think that yes america will retreat Yes. No, China will not lose out from that. Got it. Saving the, uh, the the best for last, perhaps. If you want to make predictions here, what's going to be the legacy of uh, of Biden economics? Oh, yeah. So Biden econ- Bidenomics, I think, is going to be three things. Uh, although, so so the first one is going to be cash benefits. And it's really Mnuchinomics because Mnuchin came up with the biggest cash benefits in the CARES Act. But uh, thanks, Mnuchin. It's gonna. I think it's gonna be lastingly associated with Biden, just like Carter actually deregulated, but like deregulation is associated with Reagan because he preached it so much. Okay. I think that cash benefits will be associated with Biden, and that um, you know, in the tech world, of course, which are, I think a lot of your listeners, everybody knows about basic income and the basic income experiment in Stockton, and just sort of the general idea that like cash is better than than in kind benefits or whatever, and unconditional cash is best. I think that's that's going to be associated with Bidenomics. I think this idea of care jobs, this idea of like, well, what can humans do? Well, we can take care of each other in old folks homes and hospitals, you know, whatever, psychotherapists, I don't know, any, any care job or just assisted living. I don't know. And I think that, I think the third thing is going to be investment. It was definitely time for government to start investing again. That's the one I'm worried about though, because of the gutting of science research funding in the early rounds of some of these bills. But if Biden succeeds, if Biden sticks to his guns, such as they are, uh, I believe that um, investment will go down as the third pillar of Bidenomics: investment, care jobs, and cash. Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great note to to, to wrap on. I highly recommend uh, people check out the the Substack, also the 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 podcast Hexatopia. Is that what it's called? Hexapodia. Hexapodia. It's and, like six uh, feet, you know. Yeah, and and any other sci-fi pl- novel. Oh, oh yeah, of course. And, any other plugs you you, you want to leave us with? 
No, no, no. I mean, you know, you can go, my Substack has a free email list, so you don't have to like give me money. You can just subs- subscribe to that free email list at no opinion, which is the name of my, yeah. my Substack. But yeah. Yeah. And we just, we just scratched the surface on, on, on a bunch of them. It goes, it goes much deeper and, there, and there's, a, there's a lot there and, uh, and the paid posts are, are, are great as well. Uh, no, thanks for, for coming thanks. on the podcast. It's a great episode. Thanks so much for having me on. Always great to be here. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.